Hello, and welcome to the Boring Bible Podcast. I'm Noah Randolph. And I'm Ashley Wakefield. And we're here to take you on a journey through the boring parts of your Bible, books that you just couldn't finish when you tried to read them. Together, I hope we'll get to see some of the hidden beauty in these books, and maybe afterwards you'll love them too. But if not, that's okay. You will still get to tell your friends you got through them and have full bragging rights to your pastor. Just don't let it go to your head. So let's get started. Welcome back to another episode of the Boring Bible Podcast. I'm Noah Randolph, teaching pastor here at Wayfarers Christian Church, and I've got with me in the studio, Ashley Wakefield. Hey, everybody. We are back for another episode in the book of Isaiah. If you've, uh, this is your first time tuning in to our podcast, we go through the book of Isaiah chapter by chapter, and we are at chapter 40 today. Um, this is uh, going to be a little longer of an episode because there's a lot to talk about, just particularly with this chapter and also the fact that this chapter signifies a new beginning for the book of Isaiah in a lot of ways. Um, if There's kind of two views surrounding um, this chapter and what's to follow. Um, the first view is the one that I kind of grew up uh, hearing about, um, which is that um, Isaiah 1 through uh, 66 is one complete uh, book written by one author that uh, is the uh, prophet Isaiah and that the events that happen in chapters 40 throughout the rest of the book are prophetic voices um, that's kind of looking into the future two centuries into the future um, looking at the time of Babylon because we switch from um, the uh, for the last uh, basically 39 chapters we've been in the 8th century and the events uh, surrounding the 8th century BCE and uh, from this point forward we're going to be talking about the 6th century so two centuries later when Babylon's kind of in control and in power and we're going to be looking at a lot of the different things that are happening in that time and you know, we can kind of tell that just from the context as we read through the chapters that it's definitely a shift in time period so like I said there are kind of two different views either Isaiah prophesied about things that happened two centuries later and so the people receiving um, this information in his time period it wasn't really meant for them it was rent meant for their grandkids or um, other prophets that used the name of Isaiah two centuries later uh, wrote several prophecies in the same vein as his style of writing and put together chapters 40 through 66 I'll leave you guys to decide kind of what um, view you want to follow. I will say that um, either view doesn't really affect the prophecy all that much, um, even if it were written by um, prophets not other than Isaiah. Um, there's still that element of them prophesying things like um, Cyrus being the deliverer and several different things like that, that they're still making prophecies, and it's not that they're like uh, existing like way in the future and just kind of looking back in line or anything like that. So you don't have to like fully believe that, but um, there is this interesting kind of debate going on in academic circles about that. So um, just wanted to give you an update, at least on my position, I tend to follow more in the second view that it was prophets after. But again, um, I want you guys to kind of figure that out for yourselves and I'm not going to tell you what to believe, but uh, I wanted you to at least know what the positions were on this topic before we jump into them. Um, we also have have some interesting things uh, just kind of correlating to the beginning of Isaiah. Um, if you remember way back, like, I guess it's been almost like a year now, um, 
when Isaiah first opened, there was um, kind of this introsection of the calling of Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6. And um, this uh, chapter is kind of meant to call back to chapter 6 and Isaiah in particular. There's a lot of um, the same type of languages used, crying out the voice. Um, we'll kind of get into that, but there's a lot of um, kind of repeated themes going on in chapter 6 and this chapter. And uh, a lot of the people that I've read kind of were talking about how this in particular is meant to kind of be a restart of chapter six in some ways, because in chapter six, um, the call of Isaiah is meant to give this sort of um, condemnation and judgment against the people. Uh, if you remember in chapter six, uh, Isaiah is literally called to um, basically tell the people that you're not going to listen and you're not going to obey God at all and that judgment's going to happen. Um, in this opening, what we see is that the people are actually going to get mercy and receive and listen to the words of God and the comfort that's going to be given. So there's a lot of reversals in terms of what this chapter is doing in the overall book of Isaiah, and it's really cool. That's also a good point to bring up really quickly, too, is just the overall context of this. If this is your first time tuning in, um, the last 39 chapters have been very judgmental. Um, it's been focused on the people of Assyria and uh, how the Assyrians are going to punish pretty much the entire realm. Um, the Assyrians were the first mega powerhouse in the nations, and uh, they were the first really to have like a world-conquering empire, so to speak. And uh, because of this, Isaiah is prophesying a lot of how Assyria is going to punish Jerusalem in particular, and um, really talking about the themes of how God's people were supposed to be different, that they were supposed to be a people that could stand up to Assyria, that could be relying on God for um, their salvation, and instead they're making political alliances with other nations and they're doing everything like all the other nations and so they're going to get punished. And there's this kind of theme throughout the entire book that like there's really nothing uh, that Israel can do to save itself and Israel really needs God to step in and save them. And um, Israel's broken both politically in the world against Assyria and also broken morally, spiritually, with just how they're acting and behaving. And so um, Isaiah 39 kind of ends on this really sour note where we're kind of left with a king that's really prideful and we're trying to figure out what, how is God going to rescue his people but also um, not just rescue them from other nations, but also how is God going to make them pure and holy? Um, because it seems like a common theme that we're dealing with. And so we open with this section really following that kind of idea of um, what is God going to do with his people now that they've been judged, now that they've received the judgment that God's given them? Um, what is God going to do to make them holy? And what is God going to do to fix this entire mess that they've got themselves into? So that's kind of the context. Sorry, that's kind of a long intro, but that's just helpful for anyone maybe that's tuning in for the first time, or even if you've gone through the last 39 chapters chapters. Hopefully it's a bit of a refresher to give you uh, a new perspective as we jump into this chapter. So actually, sorry, I kind of monologued there. Did you have anything else you wanted to talk about before we jump into this? No, I think you pretty much laid it out. I don't think I have anything else to add to that. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Sounds good. Sounds good. Let's jump in. Comfort. Comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her heart service has been completed that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling, in the wilderness prepare the way for the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. 
Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all people will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry out. And I said, what shall I cry? All people are like grass, and all their faithfulness is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. You who bring good news to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up. Do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. See the sovereign Lord comes with power and he rules with a mighty arm. See his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand or with the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in a balance? Who can fathom the spirit of the Lord or instruct the Lord as his counselor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him? And who taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? Surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They are regarded as dust on the scales. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. Lebanon is not sufficient for altar fires, nor its animals enough for burnt offerings. Before him, all the nations are as nothing. They are regarded by him as worthless and less than nothing. With whom then will you compare God? To what image will you liken him? As for an idol, a metal worker cast it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold, and fashions silver chains for it. A person too poor to present such an offering selects wood that will not rot. They look for a skilled worker to set up an idol that will not topple. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth, and its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy, and spreads them out like a tent to live in. He brings princes to naught, and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground, than he blows on them and they wither, and a whirlwind sweeps them away like chafe. To whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal, says the Lord, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry hosts one by one and calls forth each of them by name. Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. Why do you complain, Jacob? Why do you say, Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord. My cause is dis disregarded by my God. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. 
All right. So uh, this chapter is a little longer this week, so obviously expect a little bit of a longer episode for this one. But um, one of the cool things about this chapter is just the stark opening of it with comfort, comfort, my people, says your God. Um, What's really interesting here is that the comfort, um, when you look at the Hebrew for this word, um, is actually plural, not singular. So whoever is um, supposed to uh, comfort um, is speaking in a plural sense. So what's cool about this is it's basically indicating that um, God is telling the nation of Israel overall, the plural nation of Israel, to give comfort to itself, which I think is really, really cool. Uh, It's this idea of um, him really saying, look, you have had your time of judgment, and now I am calling you all to comfort one another uh, and speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been complete and that her sin has been paid for. Um, It's a really awesome kind of opening segment for me, especially just because, I mean, it's not really fun to go through all of these, like, judgment passages where people don't, you know, behave the way they should be, and, you know, God is just uh, having to be so harsh with them because of just their uh, refusal to really like follow after him and follow after the ways that he wants them to do. And so having this like beautiful opening is just one of my favorite parts in scripture overall. Uh, and what is really cool is that, um, from this point forward, we're going to see a lot more of a kind of influence of Isaiah in the new Testament. A lot of the passages in this are, uh, directly quoted in a lot of Jesus's things. Um, John the Baptist's famous uh, "A Voice Crying Out in the Wilderness" is in this. Um, there's just several different um, passages that are all related in the New Testament, and there's a reason for that. The um, Pharisees and pretty much everybody in the um, first century uh, really focused on this last section of Isaiah because they really felt like the Romans had dealt them the judgment and wrath of God, and uh, after that, they were waiting for this kind of Isaiah 40 through 66 mercy and comfort to come upon them. And uh, so they were really devoted to following after God. Um, they put away all their idols, which you'll see in the end of this chapter is kind of a theme about this chapter. Um, and they really were hoping to um, just become a really pure nation that God would then rescue and purify in a huge sense. And so we're going to see a huge influence of this section of Isaiah really calling forward to how everybody in the first century really thought. And also Jesus, a lot of times will quote from the, these passages as well, um, kind of reinterpreting how they thought about it. Cause the crazy thing about it is even though the Pharisees like read these chapters and were really thinking about purifying their nation and thinking about these types of things, what they kind of missed was this idea that, um, that they were never able to actually do this and that it was going to have to be God himself that was going to have to purify the nation. Instead, they believed that um, they could purify themselves and that they could accomplish this on their own. And so um, it is really interesting to read these passages because you can read them one of two ways. You can read them in the first way of uh, a call to the people to be more holy, to be more pure, and that God's going to interact with them in a miraculous and wonderful way that's merciful. Or you can read it in the second way, which is what Christians read, um, that 
uh, really the only way that this is going to come about is through some servant of God who's going to come down um, from on high and fix all of this. And so the, those are kind of the two views that we're going to kind of hold in tandem here. I try and be respectful to both those views, um, especially just because I know that um, – you know, Christianity is kind of a branch of Judaism in a lot of senses. But um, yeah, those are kind of the two ways to read this. And um, what I, as a Christian, believe is more in the uh, line of the second view. And so uh, there is going to be a little bit of bias there. But at the same time, I do want to just kind of give that kind of uh, view, show that there are two different views here of reading Isaiah and how they're read. But yeah, um, that's kind of what we're, where we're at with the start of this is just this opening of um, comfort um, for the people, um, this kind of shift from judgment. Um, and a good context too to recognize is because this is kind of written for sixth century Jews, This these would be written to Jews that have already been conquered, the temples and ruins, they're in Babylon probably, and they're receiving a lot of um, pressure to worship Babylon's gods, to kind of go with Babylon's culture. You can read Daniel as an example of this, where um, they were eating meat sacrificed to idols, and Daniel decides to go a vegetarian as a result of this. Um, and there's just a lot of different um, things that they were focused, they were like presented. Um, a lot of their law um, was kind of built around the temple. And the idea that, like, if you wronged someone, you were supposed to sacrifice something in the temple. And they don't have that anymore. The temple's gone. They can't really follow Leviticus anymore. Um, they can't follow the books of Moses anymore. And so they're really having to figure out how to think about God, how to think about everything now that their temple and everything is destroyed. And on top of that, they also don't really have an answer for God's faithfulness anymore because God promised to be faithful to David and always have a king on the throne of David. And that's no longer a reality anymore. They don't have a king. They're stuck in these various different towns throughout the land of Babylon and what was Assyria. And um, they're really in this place where they're wondering, is God even good, you know? And this is really the voice that Isaiah here kind of um, begins to talk to, um, is talk to this people that's doubting God, that's doubting um, their Jewish faith, any, uh, and really uh, encouraging them about um, that God is still faithful and that God is still in control of everything. And uh, that's kind of the whole overarching kind of point of this entire thing. So uh, we open up with this interesting um in verse three, where it says a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight in the desert, a highway for our God. So what we have here is this, there's this kind of voice that we don't really know who's this voice in particular. Um, we just have this idea of someone kind of coming on the screen, uh, on the scene, not screen, <laughs> uh, on the scene saying the wilderness is preparing the way for the Lord, make straight. Uh, a highway and we have every valley will be raised up every mountain and hill made low the rough ground shall become level the rugged place is a plain and so he's kind of leveling the field so so as, so as it were you know like taking the situation that they're in where everything is wilderness and chaos they're exiled and he's preparing a way in the middle of all that chaos for the glory of the Lord, which will come upon this people. And um, we can kind of see exactly how that plays out with John the Baptist, right? Like this is exactly what John the Baptist ends up doing. Um, and it's really interesting to see that this call here happens in the middle of chaos, which also happened in the first century. 
Yeah. So yeah, well, you were saying a whole lot. So. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> um, yeah, but just going off of what you were saying, yeah. So it's interesting how this chapter starts off saying comfort, comfort, when the last chapter ended with this very terrible prophecy about the Babylonians coming and destroying um, the temple that they've built, and also killing um, some of Hezekiah's sons. And so I find it it kind of reminds me of Jeremiah twenty nine eleven, where before they go into Babylon, right when they're about to be taken there, you know, he they have that typical verse that says, you know, for I know the plans I have for you declares the yeah. Lord like plans of peace and not of harm and so it's this idea that sort of like this juxtaposition between like this terrible word from the Lord versus this positive one where he's giving them comfort right after something terrible has been pronounced and going back to the idea of you know this purification that's supposed to happen um, with, with Israel and like them taking it into their own hands does kind of remind me what happens even after Jesus you know ascends back into to heaven with the siege of Jerusalem because that was the very thing that they tried to do was take it into their own hands because the Messiah was the one who was sent to them to be an answer to their peace. But because he wasn't the kind of Messiah that they wanted, they Mm -hmm. actually ended up doing more harm than good. They tried to figure out their own way to be rescued from the Romans because they really didn't like the kind of Messiah that Jesus was because they didn't want somebody who was coming to die on the cross for sins and death. Like they wanted somebody who was a military king who had an army who was going to re- remove them from the Romans and that didn't happen the way that they thought. So that's why you see like in Luke 19, um, I believe it is where Jesus is weeping over Jerusalem because he says they didn't recognize, they don't understand what makes peace and they didn't understand the time that God had came to them and appeared to them. And it was like the idea that because they did not understand that they did end up taking matters into their own hand and they tried to basically purify their own city by trying to rebel against the Romans. And they, and that rebellion that they did actually played they actually played their own part in having the temple destroyed because they didn't want to believe that the Messiah had been sent to them. And so I just find that, you know, really interesting, you know, making all that together. So, yeah. And I mean, you can kind of understand from these passages because it does like on a reading first read through, it does feel like God's just going to kind of show up and level everybody. Right. Like Mm -hmm. that's kind of the tone of this, this entire chapter is that like God's super powerful and can stretch out his hand. And so for God to show up as a human doesn't end up conquering Rome, but ends up, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, dying on a cross in the most humiliating way that you could die. Um, That does seem to go against the grain a little bit, even of how you might read this. Um, And uh, definitely I understand sort of that kind of uh, misread um, from my perspective at least. But um, interestingly too, in verse six, we have a new voice that says, um, cry out. And I said, what shall I cry? And in this, we kind of have the voice of Israel of their time period, hearing the voice of the one in the wilderness calling, prepare away and all that. And what they respond is that all people are like grass. All of the faithfulness is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fail um, because of the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass grass withers they're basically really depressed you know and um they're kind of giving voice to this fact that like humanity is just like breath and we just we are here for a second and gone and like there's really no hope for us you know like we are we're here and then gone and we don't really have um any type of uh really uh hope anymore in this situation because we just come and die um and so what verse nine does is kind of um switches back to the voice that's calling in the wilderness and calls to this people that's really depressed in verses six seven and eight saying 
you who bring good news to Zion, you who go up on a mountain high, you who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up, do not be afraid, says the towns of Judah. And so we have this kind of call to a messenger um, who's like running to, hey, this people is really depressed right now. Like, bring this good news to Zion. Bring it quickly, right? Um, and I kind of think that this is kind of calling to what eventually happens when the women see Jesus in the um, uh, not not in the tomb anymore, and they run very quickly back to tell everybody the good news and stuff. Um, this is kind of a eventual will be re, uh, kind of prophecy that will get fulfilled in that moment. Um, but these messengers are running to a people that are so depressed and so uh, downtrodden, and they say, "Here is your God. Here, see the sovereign Lord comes with power, and He rules with a mighty arm." Um, that's a reference to mighty arm. References are usually to um, Exodus. Um, mm. If you look in Exodus, uh, there is a lot of imagery about God stretching out his arm um, and how powerful it is. And all the 10 plagues kind of have some relationship to like Moses stretching out his arms or um, God stretching his arm over Pharaoh, um, even in um, the uh, powerful uh, Reed Sea passage, um, he uh, stretches out his arm to part the waters. Like there's all sorts of different um, kind of uh, stories where a mighty arm is kind of related in that sense. So we're kind of meant to call back to all that power. Um, and we see his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those who have young. So we have this powerful image of, you know, all that God did in Exodus. But then what's so crazy about it is that powerful arm is then like a shepherd that tends his flocks. And, um, and it's not that powerful, you know, intensity that was in Exodus, but it's this kind and gentleness um, that we kind of see shooting through in 11 because Israel's already kind of paid its dues and uh, doubly so is as as it puts it. And now we've got this um, God that's going to take care of Israel in spite of the fact that they're so despondent and depressed right now. And that's kind of where we're left with this first section, at least, is kind of looking at this kind of story from both Israel's perspective of being super depressed and then God saying, I'm going to take care of you. Don't worry. Um, I'm going to take care of you. And then what follows from verse 12 onward is sort of like a kind of a, a justification of why it's okay to still trust God, even though it feels like God kind of abandoned them and judged them. Um, and the really the justification for this is that he is in control of everything and nothing happens in the world that he's not ordaining or working in in some capacity. And so even this hard trial that they're going through, he's made happen in some way shape or form and so we have this beautiful description from verse 12 all the way down to the end that uh focuses on all the different ways that god is uh working through the world um, and so it starts with like how he measures the waters i've talked about this before how waters in the old testament in particular are an image of chaos and um death even and how he measures the waters and how um, in the hollow of his hand with the breadth of his hand, he marks off the heavens. Um, and this is also kind of going back to creation in Genesis 1 again. Um, anytime you see like measuring the waters and marking off the heavens, we're meant
important to remember that in day two of creation, at least, God divided the waters above and the waters below and created the heavens. Um, and so that's definitely kind of being called back as this creation moment. Remember, God is creator is kind of the subtext there, um, who has held the dust of the earth in a basket. That's kind of a hint to the fact that humans are dust um, or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills and balance. Um, who can fathom the spirit of the Lord or instruct the Lord as his counselor? There's also an emphasis here, too, in these chapters that are coming up of the kind of the spirit of God becomes more of a instrument in um, these chapters. It becomes way more of a focus. Um, spirit, too, I don't know if I've talked about this in the podcast at all, but spirit kind of has uh, three different meanings in Hebrew. It can mean wind, it can mean breath, and it can mean spirit. And uh, you kind of have to decide based off of the context which it means. But if you're really keeping an eye on them, um, every time spirit's used, a lot of times wind and breath are also being used kind of doubly in all of those senses. And so um, you can just kind of imagine this kind of sense in which um, we have the spirit of the Lord who's instructed him. Who did the Lord consult to enlighten him and who taught him the right way? What is taught of him as knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? It's just really powerful moments of just talking about how God's like unteachable and uh, he doesn't have to learn things. And um, he's always understanding how things are going to work out and he's always in control of these things things that humans are clabbering about trying to do all the time and we're meant to kind of think back to you know how the israelites earlier in verse six were like we're just breath we're just just this ruach that's just like that's the hebrew word for spirit breath and wind we're just ruach we're we're this type of people that just um comes and is gone and we don't do anything we don't have any lasting impact on the world and god's saying yes but my spirit my ruach is the thing that like is all powerful and is uh, something that you can't teach and something that always understands and it's this kind of ju juxtaposition that's going on here that's really cool um yeah, uh, sorry, I'm talking again way too much. This, I just love this chapter, so I'm going to monologue a lot here. So, yeah. no, I guess when you were talking, it kind of reminded me of of that moment that Moses and God had where God is going to destroy the Israelites for worshiping mm -hmm. the golden calf. And that also kind of the golden calf situation kind of reminded me of the point where he says, see, you know, this is your Lord. This is the mighty, a mighty arm like this, sort of like going back to the idea with the golden calf that the Israelites desperately wanted to have a God that was in the midst of them because they had not been hearing from God or from Moses. And so they wanted something that they could relate to and see. And I think that's that point that God was always trying to get to is that he wanted to dwell with his people. And then once you finally get to the new testament he dwells with us in a different kind of way by allowing his spirit to dwell you know in our bodies and so it was like the idea that the israelites always wanted that but they were just doing it in a in the wrong kind of way and mm. it also kind of um reminds me of like um the idea that what god is doing i'm losing my train of thought <laughs> <laughs> I got off one track of one thing and I got to get back to the other thing. <laughs> and so, um, but yeah, I think that was the main thing that I was just, was just thinking of, Oh, going back to the idea of Moses. So, but the idea that it does kind of seem like that, God and I guess it's like a communication of God's spirit with the Lord himself kind of like when he was going to destroy the Israelites and then Moses basically sort of talks God out of it and you know and it's like he is unteachable but in that moment it seems like he 
almost like he corrected God on something, which is very interesting. And I don't would say he was a correction like God was wrong, but I think it was like the spirit of Moses communicating with the spirit of God because God had a right to do what he did, but he also had every reason to be forgiving of them. And I think that's just what happened. And it kind of reminds me of what we do with our spirit now when our spirit is communicating with God. Um, yeah. and coming into agreement with something, if that makes any sense. Yeah, no, no, it does, it does. Um, we have then in verse 15 kind of a comparison of the nations. Remember, the nations are what's conquered Jerusalem. And so, you know, they're looking at Babylon and seeing how powerful Babylon is now. And so we have this comfort here for Israelites that Isaiah is kind of saying to them, saying, surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They are regarded as dust on the scales. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust, <laughs> which is just kind of a crazy crazy metaphor because scales in that time were used to like weigh out like worth and value and money right and dust is like this really small weight that wouldn't even show up on the scales and so it's this like powerful image of just like how that's like uh the islands aren't even like powerful enough to work uh Uh, to warrant like the scales moving in one direction. Um, God's moving them all. And then this idea of like Lebanon um, is not sufficient for altar fires. Lebanon, I've mentioned before, was the biggest source of wood and animals um, for the nation of Israel. Uh, And so it's this idea of even it, the most... um, the biggest source of wood and animals is not enough burnt offerings uh, before all the... uh, before him all the nations are as nothing they are regarded by him as worthless and less than nothing um because yeah the other nations are just not following after him in any capacity whatsoever and so they're not even like worthy there, there's not enough uh there's not enough sacrifices that could be made to uh atone for all of the sins of the different nations which is just crazy to think about um, and so then we have moved to this new section in verse 18 where uh, with whom then will you compare God to what image will you liken him? And this is kind of a call to the fact that because they're living in Babylon, all of these Israelites are kind of tempted to start to make different idols of God. They don't have the temple anymore. They don't, they can't worship in Jerusalem. So it's way simpler for them to worship God by crafting an idol of God in their house and just kneeling to that every day, right? Um, since they don't have the temple, it's like well why can't I just like fashion something for this purpose since like I'm already having to throw out so much of Leviticus anyway since you know we can't do it now Um, why not just fashion this idol and make it work that way Um, that's what all of my neighbors in the Babylonian community are doing right and that's kind of the context they're in so um, he kind of addresses this in the very end of the chapter saying with whom can you compare God God is not like an image um, that you will liken him to right Um, as for an idol a metal worker casts it and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and fashions silver chains from it and he goes into this beautiful imagery of just how every idol is art Right, it's crafted by someone, um, uh, and a person too poor even to select such a offering of like gold selects wood that will not rot, and and they work really hard to make it the best thing that they can possibly make. But it's still crafted; it's created by a human. It's not actually real. Um, it's art, not um, God. <laughs> you know, uh, that kind of reminds me of 
of going back to the idea I was talking about, about how they desperately wanted something to be there with them. Like they wanted some type of presence with God, whether it was with him in the temple or they couldn't have the temple and they just decided we're going to fashion this thing. And it kind of reminds me of how now once we get to, you know, what Jesus talks about with the Samaria woman at the well about there will come a time when you won't worship God at this hill or this hill over here, but you will worship him in spirit and in truth. And it's sort of like the idea that we are we are the image of God and we mm. were not created of our own free will. God created us. So like us as representations of who God is, like our physical bodies were not even created by God. So I guess that's what it reminds me of is that there is like a physical image of God and it's us. And it's something that God created even with his own hands, even though we're not perfect and we have flaws, but it's like this, the spirit of God that makes us in even more so in that image. So Yeah, no. That, and that's a very beautiful image of the kind of image of God that we are. And that's why we're not supposed to, craft images of other things. Um, what we have in verse 21 is uh, then another call, kind of a, eul- not a eulogy, but just kind of like a soliloquy of him saying, do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told to you be- from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? Uh, he being God sits enthroned above the circle of the earth and its people are like grasshoppers. Um, he stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. And so he begins to talk about just how high God is. And we do have this image throughout the entirety of scripture of God kind of um, ruling on a throne in the heavens. And then his, the earth is kind of like his footstool as it were. And so this is kind of the image that's being brought to light here is that his like throne is way up in the heavens Um, And that earth is really just a place for his feet to rest. Um, And he begins to talk about the princes of this uh, world, which could be a reference actually to just the spiritual powers of the world. Um, Princes often is referenced as like um, those types of spiritual powers that rule specific nations and things. Um, And how they're reduced to the rulers of this world to nothing. Um, No sooner are they planted, which is really interesting because you might think he's talking about humans here, but I actually think he's talking about the spiritual powers of the world. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground than he blows on them and they wither and a whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. And that's a really powerful image because, you know, the prince of Babylon, the spiritual power over Babylon was having a heyday, you know, he gets to conquer the entire world. And before him, the prince of Assyria, the spiritual power over Assyria was having a heyday. Like they got to conquer so much of the world. And, you know, God's kind of saying in these brief verses right here that like, no sooner are they like established as a kingdom and they're planted and sown. No sooner do they take root than he blows them away and they wither. And that's really true. Like most people don't realize, but Assyria, like, only lasted like a couple of kings before it died. And so did Babylon. Babylon didn't last that long. The longest lasting kingdom was actually Rome. Uh, Rome lasted for about 500 years, but like Assyria only lasted like 100 to 200 years. Uh, Babylon only lasted 100 years. (laughs) Persia only lasted like 100 years. Like they didn't actually have that long as like the chief empire over the entire region they got too big and imploded a lot of the time and so it's this kind of reference to even though they get this like moment of glory where they get to conquer everything um god's still bringing them to naught. and as soon as they're planted then they're blown away and they become like chaff and no one even like really considers them anymore um we're on to the next thing and so it's this kind of reminder to the israelites that this isn't going to last forever and that I am the one that lasts 
God speaking, I am the one that lasts forever. Uh, and uh, he keeps kind of reminding them of that fact. In verse 25, he says, to whom will you compare me or who is my equal? Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? Who uh, He who brings out the starry host. Starry host is another reference to kind of the principalities and powers of the universe. Um, one by... Uh, one by one and calls forth each of them by name because of his great power and mighty strength. Not one of them is missing. So he's like, I called each of the princes of the Babylon and prince of Assyria and prince of Persia and prince of Rome. I called all these princes by name and created them too. You know, like I, there's no one that compares to me. Um, and there's, we're just kind of left with this, like, you know, awe reading this of just how powerful this God really is in comparison to all these princes and principalities of different nations. And that's kind of the way that the Israelites were supposed to read this. Um, did you have anything on that, Ashley, um, before I keep monologuing too far? <laughs> <laughs> no, I think they say that's good. Yeah. Like, I, I feel like the uh, ending of this, too, um, is just really a reminder that, like, Jacob and Israel um, are kind of used synonymously just to talk about the remnant that's now existing in Babylon. And he says, why do you complain? Like, why, why are you so downtrodden? Like, why are you still not trusting in me, even though you've already had judgment dealt to you? Um, you know that I caused all this, right? It's just like, why, why are you complaining that like, there's no hope anymore? Because like, I'm always in control is kind of the implied thing here. Um, my way is hidden from the Lord. My cause is disregarded by my God is what they say and um what's really funny about that is just that like um they're saying that like they have no idea what god's gonna do they have no idea like what um that if god even cares about them anymore and the funny thing is is that the last 39 chapters of isaiah have all been about what god's gonna do and have all been about he's doing it because he cares for them and that he is not just going to leave them alone and let them become like the other nations he's going to punish them because he wants to transform them right mm -hmm. and so it's that idea of like you know they're saying these things about like you know how they're what how they just don't understand god and how god doesn't care for them when you know the entirety of this whole book has been meant to show that god does deeply care for them and that's the entire reason they got punished in the first place mm. you know and so it's like uh god saying in these verses at the very end do you not know have you not heard that's a phrase that keeps getting repeated kind of meant to remind them and really meant for them to like realize that they're just not thinking correctly the lord is the everlasting god the creator of the ends of the earth he will not grow tired or weary and his understanding no one can fathom he gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak even youths grow tired and weary and young men stumble and fa fail uh, fall but those who hope in the lord will renew their strength they will soar on wings like eagles they will run and not grow weary they will walk and not be faint that's so powerful because it's, it's really beginning to show that at the beginning of this, it talks about how God is all this, right? He's the one that doesn't grow weary. He's the one that's um, very strong. But he's saying that um, people that hope in him, people that rely on him, they will become like him, right? They will become strong. They will soar on the wind like eagle, eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will become as strong as him in many ways. And it's like that really powerful moment in which you realize that like he's 
inviting these people that feel like they're young youths that are tired and weary and have stumbled and fought. He's inviting them to hope in him again. And by hoping in him again, they will become as strong as he is. And that's just a powerful way to end this kind of moment in this story where we're dealing with, you know, a people group that's still trying to figure out how to serve God faithfully in the middle of a a people group that's not serving him at all. And uh, yeah, it's just really beautiful to me. That's why I'm monologuing so much. This is just <laughs> like one of my favorite chapters and uh, I just find so much beauty in this, but yeah, uh, sorry for anyone that found these uh, long sessions uh, boring, but <laughs> try not to make them. But yeah, it's just for me, there's a lot of passion in, in this. So yeah. No, you're good. Um, it kind of reminds me when you talked about everything that God was going to do even up to this chapter, because some of those judgments that he pronounced were not just against other nations, but against Jerusalem or is Israel as a whole. And so it's like the idea that I think it says this in Hebrews about how God disciplines those he loves. And so it's like the reason why sometimes God would allow those things to happen wasn't just to, to punish them or to take revenge, but to make them to make them better, to make them new creatures in him, because that, that's what they were supposed to be. And so it's sort of like this idea that I'm um, going down to the part where it talks about, you know, why do you you complain and I think about <laughs> myself in that situation because you know I've had moments where I'm like God why are you ignoring me like you know I'm going through this you know that I'm suffering through all this pain why are you ignoring me then God will tell me I'm not ignoring you like I'm not ignoring you and it's the idea that sometimes we go through things but then we get through them and it's like well I don't even know how I had the strength to get through that but it was just God who gave me the strength to do it and it kind of reminded me of something um, that I saw on a video once where these little platitudes that people say and he was making jokes about them one of the things was I can't take this anymore but then like after you say that you just continue to take it you know so it's sort of like this idea that sometimes we think that we can't handle it but then somehow some way like we end up handling it through the strength of God and you're like I don't even know how I got through that and it wasn't because of your own strength it was just the strength that God gave you so yeah yeah and overall with this chapter we're kind of invited into this new moment for the people of Israel right they've been dealt the cards of judgment and now they're in this um despondent depressed state and uh they really feel like there's no hope for them ever getting back to the way things were in the time of solomon where they had gold and silver and everything right Mm -hmm. and we're left with this you know glowering question is god faithful in to us as a people when you know it doesn't look like he is um and this is just sort of the first chapter and the reminder for this people that yes god is faithful he's always been faithful and um he's faithful over everything in the universe um and uh all we need to do is remember that he's always going to have the last word you know and no matter how things are working out right now um, good news will always come and it will bring comfort to the weary. It will bring um, happiness to the weary and the broken. And yeah, that's the first chapter of this new section in Isaiah, um, bringing new hope to this people that doesn't feel hopeful at all. Um, and uh, I'm sure you can see a lot of the tie-ins to uh, the first century and how Jesus became that for the disciples in a lot of ways. Um, we just finished up Easter here, and I think about that a lot just with the fact that like the disciples were probably at their lowest during Easter, you know, uh, and it wasn't until like uh, Pentecost really that they became like the most powerful apostles that changed the world. And so it's the sense in which like, uh, yeah, for a lot of this, a lot of this uh, in this chapter is stuff that um, 
that the disciples lived out in the days following the crucifixion and the resurrection um, and really trying to meditate on this type of thing. So, yeah, it's really cool to have all that kind of pieced together as a Christian and just sort of read this uh, in light of all that. So, yeah. Um, Ashley, did you have any closing thoughts before we end this episode? No, that's it. All right. Well, thank you so much for tuning into this episode, and we will be back in your feed next week to continue through the book of Isaiah. Thank you all. Bye-bye.